but Adam. Some more exciting answers to the baffling and intriguing questions of science. Up and Adam, science on FBI. You just heard tunes from King Cruel, and also up the top, I played you a track from Camp Cope with the opener. I've got Alice Williamson in the studio with me. I'll be in a little bit early because I just played the sting, but we're ready to launch into it. Always keeping you on your toes. Alice, this uh, this week we've had some pretty exciting news in regards to earthquakes and how we record them. What's the science here? Yep, so we, we, we know we were going for an earlier up and atom because this yeah. is about getting the signal a little bit earlier. I see what you did there. Yes! So this is, um, this is um, some research that's come from... Um, a team of scientists who have been for the past few years engaged at looking at um, the effects, or some of the team have, the effects that um, earthquakes could possibly have on the detection of gravitational waves. And, you know, we've talked about gravitational waves a lot on Up and Atom, this marvellous discovery um, by the team at LIGO. But this has got um, has led to some other kind of research, which has led to the detection of some signals that are caused by changes in the Earth's gravitational field after an earthquake. And it turns out that these measurements are much more accurate at predicting the magnitude of an earthquake, so the size of the earthquake how destructive it is when the earthquake is over a certain magnitude so for particularly large earthquakes so when it comes to earthquakes what had scientists currently been using as a form of measuring the scale of the event well um people who study earthquakes are called seismologists and that's because they look at seismic waves and these are the waves that transfer the energy from an earthquake when those rocks have kind of broken up and and exploded essentially and these seismic waves come in two forms so the p waves and s waves p waves are the primary waves and these are longitudinal waves these are the ones that arrive first at the point of detection so we should say that there are different uh, teams of seismologists around the the world who have uh, these uh, pieces of equipment that can measure these waves they look a bit like a piece of pen on a paper that kind of shakes up and, and down yep and um this once these waves arrive at one of these sites and the p waves come first these travel these are waves that travel in the direction of the vibrations are in the direction of the wave so a bit like a spring if you imagine a spring kind of pushed together and then along come the s waves the secondary waves these are transverse waves so a bit more like the waves at the beach where the vibrations are perpendicular like 90 degrees to the the direction of travel and these come a little bit after the event and these waves have been used to measure the magnitude of earthquakes for a very long time we used the richter scale this might be familiar to people um this was a scale that was devised by mr richter charles t richter in 1934 and this uh, scale was used um using a formula that basically took into consideration the size of the largest wave the seismic wave that was measured and the distance from the earthquake. But more recently, we've been using um, a, a moment magnitude scale, which is a, a more pro- more accurate for larger magnitude earthquakes. So how did they develop this newer model and what inspired it? Well, I think they were picking up some signals from these changes in gravitational waves, and then they found that um, about well, a little bit earlier than they were getting the, the, the seismic waves coming through, they were seeing some sort of interference on their seismographs, which was attributed to changes in the gravitational field. So when the earthquake is over a certain magnitude, they picked up on these these, these changes in their measurements and they could see um, 
you know that this that the earthquake was of considerable magnitude they can't detect them so far for earthquakes that are below about eight magnitude eight um, but it's particularly useful for a very very large earthquake um, in terms of getting that message that it's a really big one seconds or minutes earlier than you know you would do in the case of using seismic waves mm, yeah i one article that i've oh, one quote that i've pulled from the article from dr valet said knowing that a quake is very large a few minutes after is not very useful for the areas that are directly affected because the seismic waves will have already affected the area how how do you think this discovery or why do you think this discovery is so helpful in knowing size quickly well i mean it helps to inform a lot of things so even you know a minute's notice can actually help people to change what they're doing at that time so if you think about somebody who's about to perform a surgery for example or uh, someone who's driving um, a train or going on a roller coaster something you know that could be quite um, dangerous in a, in a large earthquake you can think about changing your behavior the other thing that's really important, if you, you're unable to change the behaviour of the population in time, this can be very predictive of tsunamis because as as we've seen you know, uh, recently, and this is the data that the scientists used, was actually from the Toku earthquake in Japan in 2011, which was so deadly. I mean, mm. tw- about 20,000 people died um, in the earthquake and the tsunami afterwards. Um, but if you can suggest that oh this earthquake was a really big one there's likely to be a tsunami then you might have time to move people out of the area especially in distant areas or coastal areas to get them moved out of the way and the other thing is that you can inform the emergency response team so they know what to expect because one difference in scale on on the earthquakes you know on on the one difference um, in order of magnitude, so from eight to nine, it's not just that it's one times larger, it's several orders of magnitude larger because mm. it's a, a logarithmic scale. So it means that uh, by you know jumping one unit, you can have an earthquake that's far greater than a unit below. So it really changes the way that first responders would, would deal with uh, crisis situation yeah definitely and where do they see this discovery and this research heading in the next few years well i think they'll probably want to see if they can pick up on any signals that they've maybe been either missing because their instruments are not sensitive enough for uh, lower magnitude earthquakes so that you could predict the magnitude of an earthquake of any order quite quickly um and i think that's probably something that they'll look for you know in, in the immediate future but i think there'll be some lots of movement in this space Alice Williamson in the studio for Up and Adam. We're talking gravity signals showing the true size of giant earthquakes. But up next, we're talking something a little bit different, yetis and how scientists are stamping out that myth. Alice, do you believe in the abominable snowman? It might be a big surprise to you, but not really. (laughs) (laughs) What? A logical scientist like you? Crazy. No, well, you know, there seems to be some evidence. One of the one of the things is you you can only really you can only really uh, sort of disprove things based on the evidence you have, but you can't completely disprove the the existence of the Yeti or the abominable snowman, mm-hmm. um, which has been um, a feature of um, Nepal Nepal uh, mythology for a, a very long time, and became kind of a bit more. Um, widely talked about in western culture when uh, british and american explorers headed off to the himalayas and started trekking um, at the beginning of the 20th century um, and there were a few sightings of uh, different footprints or um, hairy larger than 
man-like uh, beasts roaming in these areas. Maybe, you know, there was a bit of a, a thin oxygen at the time. Um, there's some great, great reports. Uh, this, is one from, this is one from Lieutenant Co- um, Colonel Charles Howard Berry. He's got a very posh British <laughs> name. He saw tracks rather like those of a barefoot man when he was um, trekking in 1921. Um, and the Sherpas that he was um, travelling with actually said, no, that's the man-bear snowman. So this myth had been, you know, very present within the region. And since then, people have just kind of delighted in this idea of the, the Yeti um, that had kind of been roaming these areas. And many people have collected items um, from um certain expeditions particularly in the 1950s that set out to find evidence of the yeti Mm. and collected things like bones and teeth and skin and hair and even samples of feces which is you know an interesting thing to put in your collection Mm. um but now a team of scientists led by um charlotte lingvist at the university of buffalo um have taken many of these samples from private collections and, and museums and even um, a relic that's come from a monastery that's supposedly a yeti's paw and conducted some genetic analysis of so these samples. what have they found from, from those studies? Well, they haven't found a new species. So yeah. they've actually found that these uh, the genetic um, evidence suggests or shows really that these samples have all come from bears and in fact three different species of bear the asian black bear the tibetan brown and the himalayan brown bear um and not an abominable snowman or a yeti so we're talking bear feces bear claws that kind of thing is yeah. that yeah so, right. so they've so what they looked at is the mitochondrial DNA, DNA. We've talked about this a little bit before. There's some advantages to looking at the mitochondrial DNA rather than the nuclear DNA because there's more mitochondria in our cells and the, the DNA is preserved it's in a in a better way. It's more intact, it's more robust, so it kind of hangs around for a bit longer. Mm. Um, and what they found is that the Yeti doesn't exist, but they've really highlighted something else that's really quite interesting and exciting about um, the, the bears in the region. They found that the two distinct um, species of bears that have um, kind of separated into two populations about 650,000 years ago. So they found that the the brown bears from the Tibetan, um, the very high altitudes in Tibet, are a different population to the brown bears that are found in the western Himalayan mountains. And it's postulated that there was some sort of glaciation event that separated these these two kind of groups of bears about 650,000 years ago and that although they're relatively close to each other they've actually remained um, as distinct groups since then so they have a you know a different lineage and this is interesting because it's told us something about the the bear population of the region and it's also important because the Himalayan bear uh, is the Himalayan brown bear is really critically endangered so it's an important um, study into you know the the wildlife of this area even if it might rule out um, or you know disprove for the moment that these samples are belonging to this famous or infamous yeti were people devil about that i think some people will yeah. be but, but i think if you're a true if i think if you really believe in something it, all you say is that the, that the yeti just hasn't been captured yet you know that it could still be wandering but i think the researchers are, are pretty sure that that this you know is not going to turn up at at some point soon there's actually a whole field of study that that's that's relating to this to the study of uh kind of uh, species that 
uh, existence remains kind of uh, questionable and they're called cryptids and the study of, of them is called cryptozoology. So this is the idea of studying these samples to see if, if, if this creature actually exists. Um, but the researchers involved in, in this campaign are not really dedicated cryptozoologists. Mm-hmm. They're really people who like looking at the, the genealogy of bones and studying the genetic information to find out more about um samples that have been found in in remote and isolated places you can check out this story it's pretty interesting over at fbi radio's twitter page we've got links for you there at fbi radio alice this is our second last up and adam together next week will be our last one i know and i've got something special what have you got in store for me i think that you might need to brush up on your past up and atoms because I think we're going to be having a little bit of a quiz for you. So you've got some homework this week um, and yeah, get ready for it. Luckily, all of our episodes are podcasted. So I've just got to go back fbiradio.com slash podcast. Go to up and Adam. Study with me, please, everyone. Alice, <laughs> we'll catch you next week. See you next week, Lucy. This was produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. fbiradio.com. 